This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Joining us right now is the Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She's also an entrepreneur, a public speaker. She's a whole lot of fun. Please welcome Jasmine Pickle to London Live. Jasmine, how are things? Hi, Mike. Good, thanks. Let's kind of look at this in in a tax-paying way, which you guys specialize in. When you look at what the Ontario government is doing here, what do you see? So, I mean, first I should say my heart really does go out to the parents and children affected by the strike because I think there are probably a lot of low-income families in the province or, you know, single parents who find it very stressful, uh, these disruptions caused by the teachers' unions. But, you know, while it's good to see the government acknowledge this and, and help them out a bit, it's disappointing that taxpayers are once again on the hook simply because teachers' unions want more money. And it's going to cost about, you know, $48 million a day uh, to help to help these families that are affected by the teacher strike. So from a taxpayer's perspective, uh, you know, it's really disappointing to see these union bosses playing politics and adding even more, you know, millions of dollars to the debt that Ontario already owes. And you see this as, as being an issue on the union side of things. So kind of go into that for us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the teachers unions will always try to convince parents that it's about education, but it's not. They have, uh, we have to understand that teachers unions have their own self-interest, and that is to increase the pay of their members and protect the jobs of their members. So um, what teachers are really striking about here is because they want a bigger raise. The government's offered 1%, um, 1% a year for the next three years, but uh, teachers unions want at least 2% a year. And I'll remind your listeners that every 1% raise that the Ontario government gives costs taxpayers $720 million every time. So, you know, what the government has been calling uh uh, the the teachers union bosses is you know they're seven they're asking for seven billion dollars and that's just ludicrous at a time when you know Ontario's debt is three hundred and fifty billion dollars already we're the largest subnational debtor on the planet but we have some of the best paid teachers on the planet so it just doesn't add up. We are talking with Jasmine Pickle of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the interim Ontario director. Jasmine, we still have the same old-fashioned fight from the unions, and we've talked about that, and we still have the same old-fashioned pushback from the government. Can you see something that becomes maybe a a road to a solution in this? Yeah, well, I think on uh, Alberta has uh, got a pretty good solution. What they said um, is that they're going to freeze teachers' wages. So, um, you know, their teachers already get paid less than they do in Ontario, but Alberta's freezing them. And I'll remind you, you know, Alberta's debt is $70 billion. Ontario's is $350 billion. And, you know, if we're going, I think that Ontarians voted in Doug Ford because they saw, you know, the previous government, Kathleen Wynne, as wasting money and, and being very reckless with the tax dollars that we gave her. So they voted Doug Ford in to clean up this mess. And if he's going to return Ontario to a balanced budget, um, which is what he was elected to do, he's going to need to address public sector, you know, gov- the compensation of government employees. And uh, because they take up about about 50% of what the province spends every year is on its employees. So, uh, again, he that's the first place that he should be looking for savings. And Ontarians know what many studies have shown time and time again, which is that government employees 
are paid better. They have about a 10% uh, pay premium on what the average Ontarian would earn. Uh, They retire sooner. They have better benefits, uh, more job stability. Um, So I think it would be fair uh, that the government look at its its employees and say, you know, they're already earning a lot more, um, a lot more than the taxpayers paying their their salaries. Um, So I think that we should find savings there. And just to give your listeners a bit of a a comparison, um, because, you know, the teachers unions are asking Ontarians who earn far less money um, to foot the bill for these bigger raises for already well compensated teachers. So to give you an idea of, you know, what teachers earn, the average teacher in Ontario earns $86,000 per year, um, but they can earn up to over $100,000 a year in salary. But when you add on the value of pension and benefits, uh, the teacher, top earning teachers in Ontario, their total compensation is over 120000 a year. And you might think, oh, that's rare. There's just a few teachers maybe downtown Toronto earning that. No, if you look at the province's sunshine list, so public sector salary disclosure um, that tells you how many of our public servants are earning over 100000 a year, there's more than 10,000 teachers on that list. Um, and, you know, these teachers are retiring on average at 59 with a pension of on average 42000 a year, while a recent BDO poll found that uh, one third, more than a third of Canadians have no retirement savings at all and half live paycheck to paycheck. So I think it's absolutely shameful that these union bosses are telling those people, the people struggling on, in Ontario to get by, um, who are earning far less than teachers, they're telling them, you know, you need to pay more in taxes or the province should go further into debt, which is future taxes that we'll have to pay, to give already well-compensated teachers an even bigger raise. Jasmine, thank you for the numbers. Thank you for the time. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks so much. Have a great day. We're going to talk with Professor Marvin Ryder, Associate Professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, about something that, if we kind of think back in time, makes what we do now sound really strange. If we rewound time about 20 years, the idea that we could go on a computer, buy something, and find it on our porch a day later would sound absurd. But as we welcome Professor Ryder to London Live, uh, it's now a reality. It sure is, uh, and it has changed the face of retail, but I'll say it this way, just a little. 90% of retail transactions still take place in retail stores. Of course, that's down from 100%, and that is the Internet eating into it. Uh, but many of us, especially as time gets short, still like to do offline shopping rather than online shopping because rather than arriving tomorrow, I can get it this afternoon, and there's certainly lots of people out there who leave everything to the last minute. Yeah, isn't it wild that we make such a big deal out of, well, it can come in, in one day or two days. If you actually do go out to the store, you can have it now. There was a wonderful, or I shouldn't say like that, there is a wonderful store called Marshall's who this Christmas season ran a series of ads talking about the miracle, the miracle of offline shopping. It's their real reality, not their virtual reality interface, real reality interface. And I give them great great credit because they were reminding folks, even though we like to talk about the hot thing to do is to buy things online, bricks and mortar still exist and they're still a very viable business model. And do you see, like you mentioned, we've gone from 100% 
90% of retail coming from actual brick-and-mortar stores down to 90%. Is it showing that maybe that 90 is going to keep falling, or can we hit kind of a, a point where it just levels off? Right. You, you raise a really good question. So let's suppose for the moment that I'm a bricks-and-mortar store. Am I going to wait and let people eat into my business, or am I going to fight back? So in the last few years, what we've noticed is that some traditional bricks-and-mortar stores have countered by having an online presence, and then rather than you having the goods shipped to your home, where they might become victim of a, a porch poacher, someone who stops by and grabs the box before you get it, you can have it safely delivered to a local store and then pick it up there. And the genius of that move, if you've ever gone to a, a grocery store to buy just a bag of milk, but you went in just to buy a bag of milk, you came out with six other items, when I go in to pick up the parcel delivered locally, I might leave with four or five more items. And that's how they have fought back. Rather than saying you can't buy online, we'll have an online presence, but we'll have it shipped to a store and we can still get you in through the doors. We're talking with Marvin Rotter, Associate Professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster, and you just mentioned kind of one of the things that we wanted to lead into, and that is, of course, the closing of what London has had for an IKEA store. We always wondered for so long, would we get an IKEA? And I think IKEA has a business model that says, yeah, you can get an IKEA, show us a million people in population, you can have all the IKEA store that you want. But instead, we've had one of those satellite pickup locations now. Now we're losing that. What do you make of, of kind of losing a spot like that? Right. Well, if you don't mind, let me just go back to that mixed message you're getting from IKEA. And I don't blame the people of London for being confused. It was just three years ago in 2017 that IKEA announced that they had planned to double their footprint in Canada from at that time 12 stores to 24. And if you take a look at the 20 largest cities in Canada, there's something you quickly notice. In Ontario today, IKEA has stores in Burlington, Etobicoke, North York, Ottawa, Vaughan. If you listen to that list closely, you'll notice there's nothing in southwestern Ontario. And Kitchener is the 10th largest city in Canada. London is the 11th largest city in Canada. And neither of them are on the list. And yet there are 14 locations today that have a store. So they're saying they're going to double. It would be logical to come to somewhere. Well, if it's not London, it could be Kitchener, but somewhere to serve those two markets. Then in 2018, IKEA announced that worldwide things had hurt a little bit and they were laying off employees, 150 here in Canada. And then, of course, in 2019, it was just a year ago, they announced that they thought they might start experimenting with small urban stores. Uh, As you may know, our population is becoming less and less small town and more and more big town. And maybe those people in Toronto, they don't need one of those 70,000 square foot stores. Maybe they need something more urban. And so in the face of all that, London, of course, lost the store. There were plans. You actually saw uh, something that went to the city council to be approved, uh, zoning, et cetera, et cetera. And that was all delayed. My bit of good news here is they experimented with these uh, delivery stores where you'd order from a catalog and have it delivered locally. I don't think the experiment went very well. And I would not be surprised if there would be some store destined for that London-Kitchener corridor, just where and when, but it's the most logical place for them to build. The other most logical place for them to build is Victoria, British Columbia, uh, and they don't have to get to all 24 locations, but those are the two big markets that they're not serving, and I I think they've got to do something in those markets. So in other words, this may not be a a peeling back or a, hey, failed experiment, we'll see in another lifetime. This could actually be something that still holds out hope for people who are fans of Ikea in this area? Well, 
Exactly. You you said, well, you've got to give us a million people. And of course, London doesn't have a million. Kitchener doesn't have a million. But you put Kitchener and London together, Kitchener-Waterloo and London together, you're darn close to a million. And so that is a very attractive market for them. Um, And I think what they discovered was that Ikea is a bit of an experience store. You have to go there and experience it. And, you know, they've got a cafeteria. They've got little sample rooms set up for your decor products. And a catalog just doesn't bring that alive. Neither does a website. So I, I think they still want you to come. I think their experiment didn't work. And now I think they're going to go back to the first model. Uh, Ikea still sends some signals. Now, whether it's a build-your-own from ground-up kind of store, or whether they would take, say, a former Sears location or a Target location, we still have a number of those sitting empty in Canada and convert those. That might be a cheaper way to do the experiment. But I, I'm still hopeful that it is just a matter of a couple of years away for London to get his own IKEA. Marvin Rotter with us, associate professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster. So if London and Kitchener is still that corridor, you might have people who are listening right now in Woodstock very excited. Hello, Woodstock. What, what do you think? Would, would a store that size be okay to go into maybe a, a smaller center, knowing there are two larger centers within arm's length? No, that wouldn't normally be the way you do it. You wouldn't put it in the middle between the two. You would, you'd pick one or the other, and you, you'd do a lot of studies to see what we call the magnet, which gets more traffic. Do more people want to go from London to, to Kitchener or Kitchener to London? And, and based it on that, you'd put it wherever you think the magnet is. Putting it in the middle, while it seems like it's the best of both worlds, it's actually the worst of both worlds. So, no, I wouldn't hold out for Woodstock or Tilsonburg or, or St. Mary's. I don't think an Ikea is coming to you anytime soon. Professor Ryder, as a final thing, and this could probably take us to an offshoot of an, enti- an entire 10-minute discussion, and we won't have that, but just the overall online shopping model and, and what a company yep. like Amazon is doing when, when business minds sit around and Amazon comes up. What do you guys talk about? Well, Amazon is all about eyeballs. How can they get more and more eyeballs to their site? Amazon began, of course, as a bookseller 20-some-odd years ago. Today, you can actually get television from them. You can get streaming television from, from Amazon. You can also get a fresh content. They make their own TV shows, not just stream existing ones. Of course, they've got Amazon Prime, a subscription service, not unlike a Costco membership. If you never use it, who cares? They still got a hundred bucks from you for each year that you're a member of Prime. So they're trying to find ways to deepen their relationship with you. But I do think it's interesting. It was just a little over a year ago that Amazon got into the bricks and mortar world when they bought Whole Foods markets in the United States, and now they're actually opening some Amazon stores in the United States, I think they're really realizing that online only, maybe you do need a bricks and mortar component to complement it. Still going to be lots of churn in this retail industry for many years to come. Well, it makes it interesting, if nothing else. Professor Ryder, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Warren Maybe is an environmental expert and professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's University, and he joins us now. Professor Maybe, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Thanks for having me. So food I can understand. Food I get because, you know, someone could get sick. Clothes and the destruction of old clothes, unsold clothes. Can you help us out here? What's happening? <clears throat> well, it does seem like a bizarre thing on the surface. I mean... Why would you throw away something that's perfectly good uh, just because it didn't sell, just because it didn't move off the racks? 
but it turns out that it does happen. You know, there are no good statistics, but uh, there's a lot of evidence, you know, people seeing things that are thrown into dumpsters. Uh, now it's being reported on Facebook and places like that. And really what it comes down to is that the industry has become so focused on getting you into the next style, right? You know, moving you through this style of pants or this style of shirt into the next thing uh, that in certain cases they got to destroy merchandise just to get the new stuff on the shelf so that you're keeping up with those trends. Wow. So in other words, this is coming from the pressure to bring in new stuff to drive business more so than it is danger. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think that there's much danger associated <laughs> with these clothes, right? And certainly it could do a lot of good, or they could do a lot of good for people uh, that maybe are in a more unfortunate position. They can't afford to buy the latest and greatest. Uh, it'd be nice to be able to, to access it. You know, one of the big issues that the industry has is that we don't recycle much when it comes to textiles, when it comes to shirts. You know, you can think of your grandmother and the way that uh, they probably would have kept old shirts and turned them into quilts and things like that. Not too many people doing that anymore. Not a lot of wholesale recycling of leftover textiles. Uh, most of what's done is done, and it goes into landfill, and, and it causes those problems that go with it. We're talking with Professor Warren Maybe, an environmental expert, professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's University. Now that this has maybe been raised and people are finding out about it, do you think there's a chance that we get retailers to stop and actually think, wait a minute, if you're going to put a bunch of stuff in garbage bags and cut it up, or there's a lot of talk that they actually will slash items of clothing so that they can't be worn, do you think there's a chance that now they say, you know, why are we doing this? Why don't we just donate this? Yeah, I think that people in the head offices, the corporate offices, they've got to look at this as a public public relations disaster. You know, this is not the way to build their brand. They just look tone deaf. They look like they're not keeping up with the times. And there's huge opportunities. So what's the downside to putting some of this stuff out uh, into, um, you know, a thrift shop or putting it out to a shelter? There's no downside. And in fact, if they're a smart business, they're going to take advantage of it, and they're going to make it part of their brand. And we do have stores. When Global News was covering this story, they actually talked with somebody from Winners and somebody from Marshalls, and they said, hey, you know, we don't really have a lot of unsold stuff. In a lot of ways, they must be one of the ends of, of things not maybe being sold the first time around, and they say they typically donate that merchandise to charitable organizations. If they can do it, can't everybody? Well, exactly. And, and so... You know, I suspect that what goes on in a lot of these cases is that it's more of an individual store owner or, you know, maybe a franchise owner that uh, is sort of overwhelmed and making decisions on the fly that really don't make sense. Uh, I, I very much doubt that there's a lot of edicts coming down from head office, but if there are, you know, there should be pushback from people. There should be a real sense that this is a waste. Uh, we know that <clears throat> to grow the, the cotton or to grow the textiles, to process it, to move it halfway around the world, to get it turned into a T-shirt, and then to bring it back to be sold, it already has a horrendous environmental footprint. Why would we make it worse by then slashing things up and, and you know disposing of it instead of letting somebody wear it? Is it true that it could be made even worse if those stores chose to actually burn the material? Well, burning is going to release any carbon or any material that 
uh, is in there right away. And we do know that some of the dyes and, and the additional materials that get put into these shirts, sometimes not all that safe from an environmental point of view. They need to be disposed of safely. You know, and again, I think that there's growing awareness out there among consumers uh, that fast fashion and cheap fashion don't always add up to good for the environment fashion. And, and there's a growing contingent of people out there that are aware of the issues and, and willing maybe to do things a bit differently. Yeah, you look at that generation that is coming up now. I think there are a lot of people who are saying, I don't need to own 16 shirts. I think I can get by on six, maybe five. And yeah. that, that's the way that it's going. So you wonder where this is headed. Well, that's right. And and you see some really successful people, you know, and I always think of Obama. You know, Obama has that classic look, a dark suit, white shirt, red tie. Uh, he basically just wears variations of that all the time. It means he probably doesn't have to own that many shirts and ties and suits, although he probably does. Uh, he can just pick it right off the rack and go straight to work. That seems to be the way a lot of people are going. They develop a uniform, and that's going to cut down on the need for all that duplication. Love it. Develop a uniform. That's that's yeah. a great way to look at it. Yeah. Well, Professor Maybe, thank you so much for talking about this story with us and highlighting exactly what some companies are doing, and uh, hopefully this puts a little bit of pressure on them to stop doing it. I hope so. Take care. Yeah, thanks a lot. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.